Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the themes of our recent trip through the Great Lakes region was the universal issue of clean water. Michigan has the distinction of having one of the largest inland oil spills in U.S. history, the 2010 Enbridge spill into the Kalamazoo River. The experience has informed Michigan's debate about another Enbridge pipeline, Line 5. The 66-year-old Line 5 is a two-pronged pipeline that runs under the Straits of Mackinac. Environmentalists want Line 5 shut down. Fossil fuel and business interests want to continue its use for several years while a new pipeline is built under the Straits. The Line 5 issue is likely to come up in the next presidential uh, debate for the Democrats at the end of the month in Detroit. Governor Jay Inslee wants it to be a major topic there, and Inslee thinks other candidates should join him in calling for a Line 5 shutdown. Previous Michigan Governor Rick Snyder had struck a deal to build a new pipeline under the Straits, but Michigan's new attorney general has filed a lawsuit that calls the deal unconstitutional and seeks to dissolve the easement entirely. While in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I sat down with Beth Wallace, Great Lakes Partnership Manager at the National Wildlife Federation, to sort out the latest on Line 5. Since the pipeline has been there since 1953, I asked Beth what makes environmentalists think Line 5 is dangerous. In fact, we started looking at other pipelines in the region um, that could have issues for the Great Lakes following the 2010 spill that happened in Michigan about 10 years ago, where we had one of the worst inland oil spills in U.S. history, and it was caused by an Enbridge pipeline. And that was um, in the Kalamazoo River. That was and... in the Kalamazoo. 40 miles of river were saturated with heavy bitumen oil. This was a new oil that entered a freshwater system. We found out a few months into the spill that it actually sinks, which nobody was prepared for. Hundreds of people became ill because of the product, and thousands of wildlife were impacted, most of which were, you know, the freshwater ecosystem, turtles, birds, migratory birds. And that spill took several years to clean up. In fact, there are still pockets of oil that they're monitoring long term. And ultimately, 150 people were displaced. They left their homes because they no longer wanted to live in that environment. Enbridge also has the other worst inland oil spill that happened in Grand Rapids, uh, Minnesota. And so we had concerns about the company and concerns about their spider web of pipelines in the Great Lakes region and the possible impacts to the Great Lakes if there's a spill. Line 5 in particular has had 33 spills to date on the inland sections. There have, has not been one, thankfully, in the Great Lakes through the streets. And at the Great Lakes, where it runs under the straits, the pipe breaks into two, and there are two pipes that slip under the Great Lakes. And is the age of the pipes a problem? Because it, 1953 was a long time ago, and do, do people worry about that? There's differing opinions on whether the age is a problem or not. What it comes down to is maintenance over time, the quality of product that they used when they installed the pipeline, and just how they have been monitoring it. And this particular pipeline it has requirements 
because of the easement with the state of Michigan for the four mile stretch through the Straits of Mackinac. Those requirements are part of law. They Enbridge has to adhere to them. And over the, the last few years, it's become very apparent that they have not adhered to some of the requirements, including maintaining the coating, the protective coating on the outside of the pipeline that is peeling away in large chunks. It has not been disclosed as to why. We, we anticipate that there are multiple reasons, including swift currents, the presence of quagga mussels or zebra mussels on the pipeline that are weighing it down as well as third-party damage that continues to impact the pipeline, whether it's the the installation of anchors and those anchors on the pipeline rubbing against the line and removing the uh, coating, or anchor strikes like we had last April, where three large dents became a part of that pipeline system. Can you say something about the place where the pipeline is? Because it's a place where the Great Lakes come together. It's a place with high currents for the Great Lakes. And if you can, uh, there was someone who went down and took a video of the pipeline and I didn't expect to see it waddling back and forth underwater, but it does waddle back and forth underwater. And this would seem to be a, a, a wild place to have a spill if one ever happened. Yeah, this location is definitely one of the most unique in the world. The University of Michigan, in particular, the, the Water Resources Division, has studied this location and the currents. The currents have different directions that they're running depending on the depth. So that so that alone is very concerning. So where the pipeline sits, about 250 feet below the surface of the water in most locations the currents could be running in a completely different direction than at the surface. And so if there's ever a leak, that we we have no way of predicting which way the oil will go. Not only that, but those currents shift every few days. And they shift not just in an east to west direction, but they go north-south. They, they go all around the compass or all around the map. And it is nearly impossible. And I would say that this is one of the worst locations to have an oil pipeline, especially one that has been there for 66 years. We know that it has not been properly monitored. And the company in recent years has withheld information or openly tried to disguise the condition of the pipeline from the state. And so we have huge problems with trust with this company, not only because of the 2010 spill, but because of their actions since. I'm talking with Beth Wallace. She is Great Lakes Partnership Manager with the National Wildlife Federation. And we're talking about the controversies around uh, Line 5, as it's called. It's a pipeline that runs under the Straits of Mackinac. And they are thinking about replacing it with a different pipeline. Enbridge would come in and build a pipeline into the rock on underneath the straits. It took a long while to come to that plan with Governor Rick Snyder. He was all over the map about the pipeline and they decided they had several plans and they decided to, you know, what we should do is is lock one down in the rock under the straits. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that plan? So the idea is to construct a tunnel that a utility vehicle or personnel could get into and look at the pipeline. This would be a tunnel that is below the lake bed, uh, but part of the lake system still, so part of the bottomlands. And this is an idea. It has not been fully vetted. It has definitely not had the feasibility done. In fact, they're out in the Straits right now doing core sampling to consider feasibility 
And so the idea that we would come to an agreement that ultimately is not a good agreement for the state of Michigan without fully understanding whether it's even feasible or not, what the costs are, what the risks are, is is not in the best interest of the state. And that's what the attorney general Dana Nessel has decided that it was unconstitutional and it's not in the best interest of the state. And she has dissolved those agreements and the lame duck legislation that happened in late 2018. She has also taken action more recently in the courts to dissolve the easement agreement because of ongoing risks, including anchor strikes. So even if we had all the trust in the world in Enbridge to properly maintain and operate this pipeline, there is always going to be third-party damage risk from anchor strikes, and that is one of the busiest shipping avenues or lanes in the Great Lakes. Uh, and we we know, uh, I think that the, the state study said a 1 in 60 chance of a rupture due to anchor strikes within the next 30 years, and then we had one within six months. All right. Um, and, but if it's built under the, under the ground, then there's no anchor strikes, right? If it is. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, again, that, that has not been proven feasible. Now, the, and Enbridge is also has a lawsuit and they are going to sue to say that their agreement was constitutional, that they have, a, that to ask the courts to rule on the validity of their agreement. Yes. That, that is under works and we will soon see how that plays out legally. But the idea is that these two lawsuits will battle each other for years in the courts. Is that about the size of it? Yeah. And I think no matter how, what path we go down, this is going to end up being a court battle. Whether we we go after the idea of a tunnel, uh, I anticipate that if Enbridge does have some success in reviving some of the agreements through the Snyder administration, that'll be challenged legally from other parties, including tribes and NGOs. What happens if the attorney general gets the easement declared unconstitutional? This is the agreement that was struck in 1953 with Enbridge. Uh, What is that? Does that just blow the whole thing up? Does that end end everything? I anticipate that that'll mean uh, there'll be a timed shutdown. There'll, There'll be time put out there so that alternatives to line five can be put in place and the Enbridge will will try to fight that in every way they possibly can. It could be several years of litigation before we fully know how this will play out. And what's the what would the alternative to this be? The alternative is that Enbridge has a lot of pipelines in this region that do not go directly through or under the Great Lakes in Wisconsin, they have several pipelines that they could utilize to transport this oil in different ways. The state of Michigan has some reliance on propane from Line 5, which we can build the infrastructure. There's a rail line that goes to the exact same location where the small amount of propane that we rely on from Line 5 can be come, can come from other sources. Enbridge says it's half the propane in the state of Michigan. It's a fraction of a percentage of what is transported on Line 5. And so Line 5 largely transports Canadian oil from Canada through the Great Lakes, through the state of Michigan, back into Canada. Canada is the main user. A little of that may come back over. But again, there are other pipelines, including the line that ruptured in 2010. They replaced it with a much larger pipeline. They can utilize the capacity in that pipeline and get product to the markets that they, they claim they need to get to. 
Now, one of the things I'm reading is that the governor want, this has been saying, well, let's not do like all these lawsuits seem to be leverage for her to negotiate again with Enbridge a new situation. What would that be? The governor really wants to have the existing pipelines in the water closed by a date certain. She wants to be able to put in place alternatives. She wants to be able to give Enbridge notice. And Enbridge has refused to to agree to a date certain for shutdown of the existing pipelines, even 10 years out. And so the governor has now, in the last few weeks, asked the Department of Natural Resources, the DNR, who holds the easement for that four-mile stretch of the Straits of Mackinac, to review the easement for past and ongoing violations. And, and this is a, a supporting effort for the Attorney General. So she is looking at all options. And you know, our goal for the National Wildlife Federation, for a lot of people that are working on this issue, is to remove the risk from the Great Lakes. The alternative if it is a tunnel, we can still go down that path, but we first need to make sure that we are removing that risk as soon as possible from the Great Lakes and removing the existing pipeline. What is popular opinion on this? I was on Mackinac Island, you know, 10 months ago, and there are plenty of signs. There are, it seems like there is plenty of people who don't want the pipeline there and are concerned. And if you ask people to vote on it up there, obviously they'd, they'd want it, but maybe... It's a statewide issue and there are different ideas. This was absolutely an election issue for both the governor and the attorney general. Both of them had very strong positions to get that pipeline out of the water as quickly as possible. And I believe they were elected on this issue in part. And I think they are upholding their promise, especially the attorney general. She is standing strong. The The problem that we have, and this is a problem throughout our entire nation, is that a ton of money is being thrown at this issue because Enbridge does not want this pipeline to go away. It's a huge money maker for them. And we know that in in Minnesota they have spent for the Line 3 project upwards of $13 million in lobbying and trying to get that pipeline replaced. And we know that a parallel effort is being spent in Michigan to try to have a tunnel or at least extend out the time frame on, uh, for which they shut down the pipeline. I, I don't know that a tunnel is the solution. I think it is a stall tactic to keep the line open as long as possible. We, again, we are not opposed to alternative modes of transportation, and if a tunnel is the option, that is fine. But it is, it is not an option that we see as being feasible in the near term. Well, we'll keep our eye on what's happening with Enbridge Line 5 that runs under the Straits of Mackinac near Mackinac Island. And thanks very much for joining me, Beth Wallace, Great Lakes Partnerships Manager from the National Wildlife Federation. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about reparations in Germany. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last month, writer and historian Tanahasi Coates testified in front of a congressional committee on the topic of reparations for slavery. It is impossible to imagine America without the inheritance of slavery. 
As historian Ed Baptist has written, enslavement, quote, shaped every crucial aspect of the economy and politics of America, so that by 1836, more than 600 million, or almost half of the economic activity in the United States derived directly or indirectly from the cotton produced by the million-odd slaves. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America, $3 billion in $1860, more than all the other assets in the country combined. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress, but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair-weather patriotism, to say that a nation is both its credits and its debits, because the question really is not whether we will be tied to the somethings of our past, but whether we are courageous enough to be tied to the whole of them. Thank you. Viewed by many as a fringe discussion in the U.S., reparations are part of the cultural and political ethos in countries like Germany and Belgium. Last March, the Ryman family, one of Germany's richest families, announced that their father and grandfather were Nazi Party supporters who used Jewish slave labor in their company during the Holocaust. Today, the Ryman family owns Panera Bread, Krispy Kreme, Caribou Coffee, Snapple, Dr. Pepper, and a host of other familiar brands. Let's revisit a talk I had with Jonathan Weissen, Chair of History at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. He's author of the book, Creating the Nazi Marketplace, Commerce and Consumption in the Third Reich. To make amends, the Ryman family recently paid out $11 million to various charities, but for a family worth $16 billion, it made Jonathan wonder if that was enough. It is striking. One is always amazed in these stories when you hear the numbers of how much companies will contribute, because we have had a history, of course, especially in the 2000s, of major German companies from Daimler-Benz that makes Mercedes, we have Bayer Pharmaceuticals, etc., making compensation payments. But it's never clear what the thinking is in the company, how much are they going to give. Now, these are negotiated, these are thought through in the boardrooms, but you do wonder how much uh, really is enough. And it's an open question. You know, this is a drop in the bucket when you're talking about tens of billions of dollars. But, you know, and where is this $11 million going to go? The charity is still unclear, but it's certainly a gesture, and we'll see what comes of it. Now, in this case, JAB Holding Company had been around for a long time, and there were conversations about what to do with it at the end of World War II, and the French wanted to shut it down, and the U.S. vetoed that, apparently. So there was some conversation, and this was, I mean, they were a functioning company in Germany during World War II, so people knew that they were involved, right? I mean, it's kind of a known thing. It is a known thing, though. It's interesting that the family company that was active in the Third Reich, a company known as Ranket Bankitzer, which owns brands today like Calgon, Airwick, Lysol, 
Vanish, Clearasil. You can just go down the list or open your uh, medicine cabinet and see. These companies, of course, are known to us, these brands, but that actual company where most of the Ryman's got their fortune was not among the big names. So it was a relatively small company in the Third Reich, yet they, like the large companies, mostly the automobile companies, did employ forced labor and slave labor very brutally, I must add. And that's something that the family now has to come to terms with. And they've been fairly open about this. But again, where did they go from here? And where does that $11 million go? And where does their, their apology go? Is an apology enough? These are sort of the questions that we're struggling with now. How does this fit into other things that are happening these days? I think a lot of people probably notice that Monsanto is involved in a lot of lawsuits here about cancer-causing aspects of the weed killer, the Roundup that everybody uses, but it's owned by Bayer now, which is a company that has a history in Germany, and it kind of creates a... Uh, I don't know what, a historical memory situation where you think about, you know, why is this company acquiring this company that is cancer causing? You know, do these companies just keep doing bad things? Yeah, it's such a good question because you see sort of two memory cultures in conjunction at this point. An American system where we have, for example, Monsanto, who also, along with Dow, made Agent Orange for the Vietnam War, now sort of colliding with the history of Bayer, which is, or as they say in Germany, Bayer, which not only had invented aspirin, which is, of course, a wonderful thing, but also heroin, but also more troublingly during the Third Reich, they were part of a conglomerate. IG Farben, along with BASF and Herxt, chemical companies that did employ forced labor and slave labor right at Auschwitz. So when you have people who were slave laborers working themselves to death and being put into the gas chambers eventually, they were working for IG Farben and then, of course, for Bayer. So now Bayer in 2018 purchases Monsanto. And when that happened, I wondered to myself, are they gluttons for punishment? Obviously, this is a huge company and this is a question of the bottom line. But now they have to pay out $80 million to one defendant. And there are thousands upon thousands of more suits against Monsanto and thus against Bayer. So you do wonder what the thinking is and whether they were caught flat-footed or whether they simply had the deep pockets to take care of it. I mean, one of the things that, you know, compensation and reparations are supposed to do, they're supposed to, in, in a theory, create some kind of learning experience or healing, right? I mean, you're supposed to uh, turn the page and get better <laughs> instead of just kind of perpetuating more uh, bad judgment, to put it loosely. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because not only have some of these major German companies – and we're talking about Porsche. We're talking about uh, VW. We're talking about uh, BMW. On and on we go. They've not only given money to surviving slave laborers and forced that they've used in their factories, but they've set up foundations that are devoted to historical memory, devoted to questions of democracy and minority rights and human rights. So you do wonder whether is that enough? Now, I do give credit to these corporations for actually sort of being involved in very important dialogues that are useful and progressive and helping people to solve problems that face us today. But then they keep making some foolish mistakes, whether it be somebody like a few days ago, the head of Volkswagen, who made the statement basically with a play on Arbeit macht frei, 
work sets you free, which was the sign above all the concentration and death camps, he said um, basically – Edit macht frei. Edit is, is short for earnings before interest and taxes. And he had to apologize because he made a joke or a pun based on that horrible Arbeit macht frei, work sets you free. So people step into it. But, you know, that's a small uh, question. The larger question, again, is whether apologies go particularly far. So, for example, Belgium now apologized for its treatment of colonials, apologized for kidnapping people in Belgian Africa and bringing them back to Belgium, the mistreatment of these mixed-race children. And so where does it go from here? Is it apology enough? And will this learning process continue? And I think in many cases, companies in Germany have set the standard. And I can talk to you about how American companies can learn a little bit and have learned a little bit from this. But we can't forget that there's a sort of parallel development going on here in some ways. I'm talking with Jonathan Wiesen, uh, chair of the history department at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's author of Creating the Nazi Marketplace, Commerce and Consumption in the Third Reich. And we're talking a bit about uh, historical memory and reparations. Well, how does this apply you know, to the U.S. case? Obviously, there's a lot of discussion about reparations and slavery and what would be a decent kind of compensation, what would be a rational kind of compensation. How does that fold into what we know about what we've been talking about with Germany? Yeah, what's fascinating is that some people, in this case groups who felt they had standing, actually filed lawsuits against some of the old American companies, banking companies that had, for example, taken out insurance policies on slaves, whether it be Aetna or Fleet Bank or uh, Lloyd's of London in Britain. And now there was an attempt in the 2000s when this was really a larger discussion to actually sue these companies for damages. And judges ultimately in the United States dismissed it. But what's interesting is that the victim groups or those who are descendant from victim groups had looked to the case of Germany where there were lawsuits and where Jewish and non-Jewish victims of the Holocaust and Nazi policies have gotten some compensation. But what's fascinating, what's different about it is, that, of course, the time period. Now, we're still dealing with some of those millions of slave laborers who worked in Nazi factories and on farms and what have you. But, of course, now with the question of reparations, we have the issues relating to people who are the descendants of those who were enslaved or on chain gangs or abused in some way. And there it gets tricky because uh, you can give money to individuals, but that you have to, as a company, uh, support initiatives that really are about reckoning with the past. And I think that's key. Coming to terms with the past is so central to a democracy, uh, whether it be in Germany, whether it be in Europe, uh, broadly, whether it be in the United States. One of the things that is true about uh, the slavery situation or the Germany situation or any other is uh, how much did the companies profit from this behavior? And when you extrapolate it forward, they're building on that wealth that they uh, created with this bad behavior. This family in Germany obviously is a pretty acute example of that, that they've really been able to just multiply their holdings over the years. But if the core of it, the nut of it was so bad, that, you know, it seems like they it doesn't do enough. Yeah, it's really uh, 
again, back to that original question, which I'm self, I myself am grappling with, is that, you know, what does $11 million, $11.3 million do? It's a drop in the bucket, obviously, when you look at the massive holdings that the JAB Holdings Company has in its portfolio. And you do wonder, you know, where is this going to go? Is it going to go to a foundation that then supports uh, some sort of reckoning with the past or supports some graduate students or other scholars who come to Germany? Those are very noble things. There's no question. But you do wonder how you kind of deal with the financial reality that these are monies that are directly sort of built upon earnings and profits that corporations and small businesses and middle-sized businesses made during and from the Holocaust. And so what is our standard? Do we say 22 million, 33 million? But it's undoubtedly a tiny company. Now, the Ryman family has expressed its horror at the findings of these scholars who are now working more directly on their family history. They have talked about their shame and their desperation of this and even have said that their father and grandfather should have been in prison. But again, when it comes to it, do we gain more by having a really solid and even punitive payment that reflects something that might even hurt the company rather than simply a token? You know, in the U.S. case, we have this structural problem and, you know, we've got African-Americans who are still stuck in a structural hole because of what happened uh, with slavery. And, you know, it seems like rectifying that is something that would be, you know, at least making an effort to rectify that would be something that would be uh, just. I mean, it's kind of a different kettle of fish, but it's the same thing in a way. Yeah, yeah, and I absolutely agree. And, you know, we look at some of our most elite universities, Brown University, Harvard University, 10-plus universities in Virginia are now struggling with the reality that they were founded with money uh, based on the slave trade or something related to slavery. And, you know, they've been talking about reparations. But what's been tricky about reparations is, is that the courts have more or less thrown it out. But then what form should it take? So obviously in many northern cities or in southern cities where I am, there's tremendous discrepancies in wealth. And how can a company and our society more broadly deal with that? And I think at the very least, it's important for these universities or for Fleet Bank or for other companies that were involved to really commit themselves to a culture of memory and a culture of memory through payments, whether you can devise a system whereby you can actually sort of compensate people uh, directly is another question. But are they pouring money into fighting issues of school segregation? Are they pouring money into questions of mass incarceration? You know, you'd have to go company by company, and they often do have branches to their company that deal very much with corporate sponsorship and donations and charity. But it's not as much of a discussion in the United States as it should be, I believe. And I think that's what's unique about the German case in that sort of the democracy that was built after 1945 in West Germany was based on a culture of memory. And I think here we don't have that, whether it be with respect to African Americans or to Native American peoples. And down here in Alabama, where I am, there is an incredible gesture towards sort of discussing the past, whether it be with Confederate monuments elsewhere, of course, around the U.S. But it is really striking to be here where there is sort of an open discussion about what one does with the legacy, say, of Jim Crow. 
But again, these are very difficult questions because how do you devise a system of reparations? I kind of leave that as a question mark. And when is it enough? I imagine the companies and the people involved in some of these probably think at times, well, we've done enough and uh, or at least we seem to have done a lot and we think we've done a, you know, a pretty good job. When do people stop pointing the finger? Exactly. And I think there's always this hope. You know, you can have expressions of contrition. You can have expressions of horror. You can have these charities that are set up. And I think that's very important. But there's always the bottom line. And I don't mean to sound crude about it, but I think even the corporation leaders and company leaders that I've talked to with my earlier projects in, in Germany will be the first to admit it. In fact, when Germany set up in the year 2000 a foundation devoted to the compensation of former slaves and forced laborers, the chancellor at the time, Gerhard Schroeder, said, you know, this should put an end to the attacks on our country. So there is this sense that you can sort of pay your way and then hopefully the past will go away. Now, again, how do you decide what percentage of your fortune, your family fortune, or your corporate earnings should go to this? And these are very small percentages. And a discussion, I think, should continue about sort of how you compensate people and how you use corporate citizenship to keep these discussions going. Jonathan Weissen is chair of the Department of History at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's author of Creating the Nazi Marketplace, Commerce and Consumption in the Third Reich. We were talking about the Ryman family and their compensation for the Holocaust and reparations in the U.S. Coming up after the break, our global activism segment, where we feature people who make the world a better place. I'll talk with a former child laborer who now helps end child labor in India. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. India has some of the highest concentrations of child labor in the world. Avani is one organization that's helping end child labor in India. Avani is located in Kolhapur district in the southern part of the state of Maharashtra, that's south of Pune in, in, in India. And with me is Anuranda Bolsle. She is from Avani, and she's here in Chicago to talk about Avani's work with the India Development Service. And it's great to meet you, Anuranda. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. I wonder if you could tell us about yourself, first of all. Um, it, you're a, you were a child laborer when you were young in India, um, and now you've grown up to fight the practice. Um, tell, give us a thumbnail sketch of what happened there. Yeah. Um, of course, I mean, uh, I was a child laborer. Uh, right from my age of uh, six, uh, I had to put myself in the work, uh, in domestic work, um, just to support my education. Uh, and survival. So, um, of course, my school was nearby, and I could, uh, the family I worked, I mean, I worked uh, for five and a half hours in the morning, 
I could attend the school later on. And then in the night, evening, once I finish my school, uh, again, four hours, four and a half hours around, I worked uh, there as a worker. But most important that uh, the families, they allowed me to go to school. Uh, that was uh, something uh, very good that I could also attend the school and work. Um, I come from the family where we are uh, 12 children. Uh, my number was 11 wow. and faced a lot of poverty. Um, and there was uh, impossible uh, for my parents to put us in the school and uh, help us to get educated. So as a child, I decided that uh, no. And I used to see a lot of people going to the school, children going to school, getting educated. And I felt that education was the key towards my development. And that's the reason I continued my education. Um, till my 10th, I uh, I was in, from 7th to 10th, I was in a hostel. Um, then after that, I finished my uh, degree, a social work degree in Mumbai. Uh, but all these throughout my childhood, right from the age of six, I struggled, I fought, um, but I found opportunities. Yes, there was struggle, there was difficulties, but there were people who supported me, who gave me opportunity, and I made best out of those opportunities. How did you get involved with Avani? How did this happen? Um, first of all... Um, since I was, I went through all these pains as a child, I always felt that I need to give back to the society. And once I became a professional social worker from Mumbai, I thought of giving back to the society. And that's the reason I joined uh, Avni organization um, and thought of just concentrating on children, those who are child laborers, those who are, don't have any opportunities like I had when I as a child, and that's the reason I chose to work with Avni and to um, see that how we can reach to maximum child laborers, uh, specifically on the from the migration, those who migrate to Kolapur, uh, children who are in the industries, uh, children who are uh, in domestic work, mostly the girls. So I start, started concentrating uh, with these type of uh, children. Can you tell us a little bit about um, migrant children, where you're at? Because I don't think most of us understand what uh, what the situation is or how children can uh, be available for jobs or uh, it, and there's a brick laying in, brick making industry where you're Correct. at there's um, sugar cane work there's domestic work uh, but uh, how do the, how do the children come to get these kind of jobs um the thing is uh, the state of maharashtra's seven districts are have so much of drought and uh, these families, for seven months, they have nothing for survival. So whole family, along even with their animals, the buffaloes, cows, they have to migrate to Kolapur. And Kolapur uh, is the place where it has got good rain, rivers, and it grows good sugarcane. And because of the best soil, a lot of brickyard uh, are there for the seven months, um, and the the soil produces uh, good uh, bricks, so 
lakhs of family they migrate to Kolhapur, and along with the families, the children are there, and the questions of survival, you know, and these children because there are no schools around, they have to put themselves in the uh, work. They work with the parents right from the uh, morning from four to evening seven o'clock. So Avani, we run. Uh, schools on the brickyard, on the sugarcane. We also run daycare centers for the children. We have health programs, uh, health checkup, immunization and vaccination program for the mothers. And we have um, also counseling center we run on every brickyard. Uh, we run counseling center for the people who are addicted towards alcohol. So we have a whole integrated program for these migrant populations. And it runs seven months. We work endlessly seven months with more than 12,000 children every year. That sounds amazing. I'm talking with Anaranda Wolsley. She is from Avani, and she's working to help end child labor in India. Um, that's such a comprehensive, integrated set of programs, it sounds like, you have there. Uh, but I also understand you try to go to the root causes of child labor and try to persuade uh, the bricklaying companies and that not they, to not use child labor. How successful is that? Um, I I believe as an activist very much that unless we tackle root cause, uh, you cannot uh, eradicate these uh, issues. So that's why we work with brickyard owners. Uh, we educate them that these are the laws and you cannot employ children, you cannot exploit them. But if they are not positive, we do file cases against them. We do a lot of advocacy work also with the government, but mostly filing cases helps to prevent another lot of children from being uh, child laborers. So that's why filing cases, that's the route, making use of the law, implementing the law. India has wonderful laws uh, for the child laborers right from 1986 uh, then till 2016 we have been uh, improvising on laws acts and legislations but the when the problem of implementation comes people like us their role becomes very important that's why on brickyard on sugarcane we do file cases against even on the factory owners because they employ children the farms which are owned see one side the factories they make more and more profit but these children their childhood can never get cure they never even get basic things we are asking for their basic education. They don't even get that. So that's why we just go on filing cases. And that helps, you know. We, have, we also work with the judicial system that how they can be more tough on such type of uh, employer and give them a hard time and uh, do the proper implementation laws and legislations. I also understand that you do a certain amount of rescuing child laborers. What, what is a situation like that where you would rescue someone? Yeah, I believe that's a part of rescuing child labor is um, is making use of the laws in correct ways. So we do have a lot of awareness program these employers, but as I said, when they don't really cooperate and they they want to exploit the children and they want to make more money for their own profit, there we see the problem. And then we file cases against against them. Uh, even sometimes police are not so positive. We educate police also why they need to do that. Because people want to show their sympathy. 
I don't believe in sympathy. I think as an Indian citizen, every child has a right towards getting constitutional rights, the basic education. So that's why we file cases against and rescuing becomes very important. And I believe prosecution is prevention. I'm talking with Anurada Bosley. She's from Avani and is here in Chicago. And we're talking about ending child labor in India. Now, I know you have a focus on young girls, uh, young women. Can you talk about the special situations that they're under? With young girls, I see basically, specifically on migration, uh, the children, when many families, they migrate, I see a lot of families getting rid of these girls by getting them married off. And I say, yes, there are laws existing, but child marriage is happening very often. So we try to, even there also, we literally, we have a hard time. We file cases against even the parents because they are not providing enough opportunity for these girls. We, at the slums, where India Development Society support us uh, to work with the waste pickers, uh, we run program for the um, life skill education for su- such young girls so that they themselves, they prevent their own marriages. We also have gender equity program for the boys. So right from the childhood, they start respecting women and they understand why they need to respect women. So right from the, uh, along with the girls, we also work with the boys. So working with the uh, with the help of India Development Society, GWI, uh, with uh, Arun Gandhi's guidance, we do a lot of social service for the young girls. And we had been able to prevent more than 7,000 young girls getting married and putting them in the school in last seven years. Um, it's great that you have supporters here in this country. You were mentioning the Gandhi World Education Institute, which has worked with you. Arun yes. Gandhi is the grandson yes. of Mahatma yes. Gandhi. yes. And uh, the India Development Service, a development organization here in Chicago that I've uh, known for years, is uh, also working with you as well. Yes. Um, India Development Society, they are, uh, with their great support, we were able to help 3,300 families, those who were of waste pickers. Uh, We had a massive poverty alienation program for these uh, families. 294 children we put back in the school. They were child laborers in the West-speaking community. And with GWI, Gandhi World, Worldwide Education Institute, we were able to rescue more than 7,000 children and give them back their childhood. So these two organizations have been very great support uh, and Maharashtra Seva Samiti from Canada, they also, they had been supporting this cause on Brickyard. Um, their support has been massive for this uh, Abani. You mentioned the India Development Service and the, and the rag picker communities. Can you explain a little more about that? Because I, I think most people don't have a good picture of what a rag picker community is or does or what, what how, you, how an intervention would work with them. The, the rag pickers community is a community even today, after 77 years of freedom in India, the, these are the communities. They live on collecting of the trash and selling them. Whatever plastic, whatever plastic is thrown on the road, whatever can be recycled that they collect, sell, and that is their livelihood. And mostly 
in my state around 12 lakh women are engaged in west speaking it's a very hard work they come from unorganized sector their health is affected their children cannot go in the school and their generations die in this type of work and this is very unclean occupations so india development society has helped us to organize these way speakers bring them together give provide them with their constitutional right send them ch- their children to the school um so we are able to after working with them four and a half years we were able to uh, organize unionize these women and we are able to provide them with the green businesses creating green concept you know and sending their children to the school has made a lot of difference in this uh, in the life of these families and ragpicker communities there's a, is there a caste element yes, to this yes they are uh, considered as a lower caste untouchables and that is a, a hard habit to break in, in that's a, that's a stigma that's very bad and their generation the life expectancy of these women especially those who are in west speaking is just not even more than 55 years so it is very it's very much challenging for us to work with these communities and now you're going to be talking at the India Development Service at an event on Sunday July 28th I'm going to be there Steve Bynum's going to be oh. there we're all going to come and we'll see you speak and Wonderful. it's it's a membership appreciation event it's at the Masala restaurant in Warrenville and that's at 12 o'clock on July 28th and people could get more information about that at the India Development Service website and if people are more interested in more information about Avani the people can go to your website at avani.org.in and they can see about your work uh, helping with and child labor in India Thanks for coming here and thanks for doing what you're doing in India and helping end child labor. Thank you very much. Uh tomorrow on World View we'll be back with more. It'll be Friday and we'll have uh, some good things to do on the weekend. We'll talk with weekend passport empresario Anari Safavi and we'll have some ideas about how to have a great international weekend. Hope you can join us uh tomorrow for World View. We'll also be talking about uh Turkey and the, the US and the problems they're having over some of their military hardware. Hope you can join us tomorrow for World View. World View is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald and you've been listening to World View on WBEZ.